Our friends at Art Scroll have released a brand new book. I had an opportunity to read it a couple of days ago, and it's pretty amazing. It's the epic story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah. The book is called 90 Seconds. It's written by Rabbi Nachman Seltzer, whose credentials don't have to be described to this audience. You're quite familiar with his work. It is a uh, close to 500-page book, The Incredible Story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah. Go to artsgirl.com. Make sure to use promo code RADIO for your major discount and, of course, free shipping. Always use promo code RADIO at artsgirl.com. Our guest this morning is Ellie Beer. Uh, he is the subject of the book 90 Seconds. He's a great friend. He's a, a, a brand-new grandfather again. Yesterday he had a... Uh, Another grandchild, Baruch Hashem. He and his wife and the entire family, of course, are celebrating Baruch Hashem. And um, he has been an amazing friend of ours for many, many years. We've actually spoken about this amazing story more than once. But now it's in this incredible, um, uh, incredible um, a book that Rabbi Seltzer has written. And that gives us the entire history of United Hatzalah. Ellie Beer. A special privilege to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Uh, good afternoon and good morning to you. <laughs> Thank you for that. A mazal tov to you. And it's funny because so much of uh, what you've been through over all these years, um, it, it feels like we've sort of told the story in different stages through different conversations as the years have gone on, whether it was the development of United Hatzalah, whether it was the introduction of the Ambu cycle, whether it was your own um, uh, difficulty with COVID, which, of course, we had a chance to discuss uh, after you had recovered, thank God. Uh, but having it all in one book, for you, that must be an amazing feeling. What's your reaction now that the book is out? Well, you know, listen, I, I never thought one day, three days after, three years after... I would be laying in a hospital in in uh, in Miami, uh, fighting for my life. I would hold a book of uh, my last thirty three years. Uh, I, I it's like a it's really um, it gives me a little perspective of I never really look back to see what United Atella was doing the volunteers. I never really paid attention, and all of a sudden I'm reading Nachman Seltzer's book. <laughs> and I'm saying, wow, I can't believe it. It's incredible stories about volunteers, about chutzpah, about incredible miracles. And it makes you feel good, and it makes you want to do more. And you have been doing more. There's a lot of aspects to the book. I mean, the, the you know supporting the organization is a challenge, and obviously you have friends and supporters around the world who have understood the importance of the mission. Uh, but I think one of the more... Uh, interesting parts and that that many people would find a challenge is the united part of united Hatzalah. Um, I paid careful attention to the chapters that discussed how you went ahead and really brought everybody under one roof because the Hatzalah type organizations in Israel were pretty scattered and pretty independent and you felt it was really necessary to gather everyone together. Some may think that that's a very hard thing to do in the Jewish world. How did you pull it off? Well, listen, you know, our enemies are very strong. We unite. And we see that all the time. Unfortunately, now in Israel, we have such a diversity, such fights, such people don't want to talk to each other and people are fighting with each other. In 2006, we had a very bad war in Israel, Lebanon, Second Lebanese War. 
And I saw that as an opportunity when the Hezbollah were planning to murder every single human being in Israel, every Jew, not only Jews, but they wanted to kill Israelis living here. And they were launching missiles and towards Israel and in the south, in the, actually mostly in the south, in the north, but also in the center. And we had, we had, we had missiles were, were attacked every minute. And people, you know, worried what's going to be with Israel. And that's when I took all the Hatzalas in Israel. Like they had 25 different, you know, branches. And I said, listen, we have to meet together. We have to meet and we have to talk about making one organization. Not only that, I want to bring others. I want to build 200 Hatzalas in Israel. I want to bring the secular Jews together. I want to bring the Dathilomi Jews together. I want to bring the Haredi Jews, the the the, the Hasidim, the Litvaks, the everyone together, and even non-Jews. People thought I'm crazy. I'll never succeed. And I said, we have to do it. This is our mission. If we want to save lives, we need to bring everyone together. You can't say I'm saving lives only for my community, but not saving lives for the community next door because they're not the same color. We're not the same. We have to save lives together in Israel. And that's, and that's how we succeeded during the war. That was in the bomb shelter. You read about it in the book. So... Today, um, is that the current situation today? Is everybody united under one umbrella? When people say Hatzalah, they're referring to one nationwide organization? Well, unfortunately, not, not, not complete. You know, it's very hard to unite people. It's very easy to separate people. Very easy to cause machloket. Very, very, unfortunately. Very hard to unite. We... When we made these decisions to make a one organization, we called anyone who wants us being our standard. Uh, first of all, accepting others. If you want to accept others, uh, this is your place. But a lot of people were not happy with this. It was not easy. It was, it was very difficult. People said, oh, you're having secular Jews. We don't want to be together with them. You're having Haredi Jews. We don't want to be together with them. Anyone who doesn't want to be in one roof will not join us. And we were... We were 95% successful, not 100. I don't think we'll ever be 100. You know, I was learning uh, the Megillah, you know, not only reading the Megillah, learning the Megillah, I was always interested in knowing why Mordechai Yehudi was not Ratzoy Lerovichov. It was Ratzoy Lerovichov, not Ratzoy Lerovichov. Why wasn't he loved and accepted by everyone? You'll always have people who were, you know, were not, not be happy to be, you know, weren't, happy with Mordechai and for different reasons. But when we came with United at Salah in 2006, it was the right opportunity to say, let's unite, let's make achdus. It was so much machlokas going on. It was, but, but the Hezbollah brought us together and we were successful. 95% of all the Hatzalahs in Israel united under one, united Hatzalah. Does that include some of the communities of Judea and Samaria? Do you have Hatzalahs that are under your umbrella there as well? Every community in Yudavish Ramon, and like every other community in Israel, by us we don't see a difference between Israel and Yudavish Ramon. Right. It's the same place. We didn't want to divide. It used to be that they were all divided. Oh, Hatzalah for B'nai Brak, Hatzalah for Haifa, Hatzalah for B'nai, for, for Telstone. Each one is separate. If you were visiting your grandmother in Telstone, you couldn't, you couldn't save anyone's life. Now, you could be volunteer from a kibbutz in the south with an earring on your on your right ear and with a tattoo in your hand in your arm and you, you go to Benebrock to visit your grandmother, you could save someone's life there. There is no difference. There is no 
we are one organization. You see, uh, I, I was sitting at the United Atella Center this week, and I saw a volunteer from a kibbutz called Mazra. I don't know if you ever heard of Mizra. Mm-hmm. That's a kibbutz that grow, they grow pigs. This is the kibbutz in Israel that grow pigs. I asked him where he lived. He told me Mizra. I said, oh, Mizra, is that the place with the chazirim, with the pigs? He said, yes, we're talking, and he loves Atella. He's a guy never been to Shul before. And he's, uh, he's, we're talking, he's in the course. And he came to Yerushalayim, and, I, and all of a sudden, another volunteer comes into the building in Yermiyahu Street, and he has payas, long payas, and a beard, and a big white uh, yarmulke on his head. So I, I look at him, and I said, are you a volunteer? He says, yeah, I'm a volunteer. I volunteer, I said, really? What chassid are you? He says, I'm told this Aaron. He said, told this Aaron? I said, do you know this volunteer from Mazra? You ever met him before? He says, what are you kidding I'm in the course together with him. We're learning together in the course. <laughs> and I said, do you get along? He says, we get along. We train with each other. We love each other. We, we accept each other. No one's trying to change each other. No, everyone's, everyone's, everyone's living their life but accepting others. And that's what we have to be all about, accepting other people, no matter who they are. And you want to you make a kid a Shashem, do chesed, do good things, and that's how you have to be mashpia on other people. Ellie Beer is with us live via telephone. The book is called 90 Seconds, The Epic Story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah. We will discuss why the book is called 90 Seconds in a moment. Um, it, it, one, of the, uh, one of the reasons that the epiphany was so effective, the one that you had about uh, creating ambu-cycles, is because of the traffic situation in so many different areas of Israel. Tough to get ambulances through. You came up with this idea. It hit you uh, that if you would have uh, some type of mini-ambulance, so to speak, on a motorcycle, an ambu-cycle, it would have a tremendous amount uh, of access to areas that uh, they would never be able to get through with an ambulance. Why have we not seen this model of ambucycle adopted in other major cities around the world? Well, some cities they did. I was just in Brazil a couple months ago, and I went to see the ambucycles of the city of Brazil. Actually, uh, sorry, the city of Sao Paulo. The, the 911 there, they started building these ambucycles, and I went to see them, and the head of the and the 911 system, the EMS, told me that he learned it from what he saw uh, in Israel. Now, a lot of people don't know who the organization in Israel is. He said, I saw these orange ambucycles, these motorcycles. Many years ago, I was in Israel, and I saw it, I said, I have to build it here. And people are copying the model, but unfortunately, not enough. You know, I want it to be everywhere. I want United Atella model of volunteers driving two-wheelers instead of four-wheelers. Very hard. I'm in Yerushalayim now. Traffic, I wait. If someone had to would be choking. He would wait 20 minutes for an ambulance if it wasn't for the ambicycle. And it happens everywhere. People die waiting for help. And we could prevent a lot of these unnecessary deaths if we have volunteers ready to jump on a two-wheeler, on a siren with medical supplies and a defibrillator and they get their test. But yes, it's much harder to... To drive it. It's a mysterious message. It's a real mysterious message. You know, I'd rather drive a Lexus with air conditioning and music than drive a two-wheeler in the heat of B'nai Brock or the cold weather of Yerushalayim. But you know what? When you want to have a mission of 90 seconds, you want to get there in 90 seconds, the only way you could do it is if you give up some of your comfort. 
And right. this is giving up your comfort. Uh, I didn't even think of that, that obviously weather is a factor, and there are probably other factors as well that don't always make it easy for people or communities to implement it. And th- this idea of uh, someone, God forbid, um, you know, losing their battle for life because they had to wait. I forgot how you put it a moment ago. Uh, it was those types of stories that got you started, right? It was what you saw with your own eyes. People literally die dying because they were not able to get the help in time that helped start this entire effort. Well, I started I started this whole organization not knowing it's going to turn into United Hatzalah. This was just because I was a young boy. I was, when I was a child. I was a Renyaksa bus that blew up in Baitfagan, and people died waiting for help. It was a terrible disaster in my neighborhood. Six people died. It was on the 12 bus it was a Friday afternoon, and growing up, I remembered what I saw, how people were laying there screaming for help. I said, one day I want to save someone's life, and I went to volunteer in an ambulance, and being in the back of an ambulance, I used to write down every emergency call, the time we got it and time we, re- we got to the emergency, and it took us time, it took us 17 minutes on average. And I realized every single time we got to someone who was not breathing, by the time we got there, we couldn't do anything. We would try, but it was it was irreversible. You can't reverse brain damage and death. And healthy people who just had some kind of episode, someone choked or someone had an allergic reaction and they were waiting too long, they would just die. And I didn't understand why no one's doing anything before the ambulance. And that's when, if you read on the book, you'll see what triggered this whole idea was that seven-year-old boy who choked while he was eating lunch, he, was cho- he choked on a hot dog. And we arrived 21 minutes too late. And we couldn't save him. And uh, that's where the idea came up. You have to read the book and see how simple the idea was. It's not some, I didn't come up with a, like a medicine for cancer. You have to do research for 50 years. This is simple. When you scream for help because someone needs help, you don't have to wait 20 minutes for an ambulance. The book is called 90 Seconds, and the goal was to literally be able to have people who are in these desperate situations contact Hatsala, and 90 seconds later, somebody be at their doorstep in their apartment, in their home, helping the person who is in distress. First of all, uh, for those who might be skeptical, is this a reality? 90 seconds is a very short period of time. Is that the situation now where where so many calls can be answered and a member of Hatsala, uh, a, you know, could be there uh, on the spot within 90 seconds? Well, if you, I, I can give you a very simple example that many of you use. You use the Uber app to get, or Lyft, to get people, to get drivers, random drivers to take you to the airport or anywhere you need. Years ago, he used to call it car service, that he would wait maybe sometimes an hour right. uh, for a car to come to you. Now that you have thousands of drivers with their own private cars who are willing to drive people, of course, for money, but they are spread around like a network. And someone quote, presses a button, and within a minute or two, someone shows up on your doorstep and takes you to the airport. This is the idea of United Hotel. We're the life-saving Uber. We're the, we're the, but we are volunteers, so the motivation by us is much higher. No one gets paid. The volunteers are on the field. All They do this all for the goodness of their heart. And they're driving their cars or they're driving their ambicycle. We have volunteers who are taxi drivers, and they have medical supplies in their car. They're trained. 
And we have an app that locates exactly where they are 24-7. So if something happens nearby them, we will find the closest people to the emergency. They will be responding, and they will be saving lives. I was once in the Tala headquarters, and I know you were developing at that time the radio system, which I'm assuming is the one you're referring to, where where instead of instead of putting out a call and expecting to hear back from somebody who might be near the place of the emergency, now you're able to determine exactly where all those volunteers are, right? Is that the system these days? Yes, this was uh, the Moscow Telecompass started many years ago. We were the first one before any other app in the world. We actually started before it was called app. Before iPhone, we located volunteers based on their GPS location. Very simple. And a volunteer could be in the middle of a meeting in a place that he doesn't even, he's not familiar with. And the closest emergency nearby him will be allocated to him because that person is closer. And today we have Six and a half thousand volunteers, men and women, by the way, who are responding to emergencies that are close to them. And uh, we get there in 90 seconds in some cities, not all of them. We want to get, our goal is to get to 90 seconds nationwide. And to lower response time, we need to train more volunteers. We need to buy more ambicycles. Every day, we treat almost 2,000 people. And our goal is to make sure that no one has to wait more than 90 seconds. Right. You know, you bring up something that um, uh, here has always been a sensitive topic. Um, I know, and I'm not familiar enough to discuss it with uh, with authority, but I know that, uh, generally speaking, the Hatzal organization here and the lifesavers that are called upon are generally men. I know that there is... Um, uh, a concerted effort to keep it uh, um, as you know, people from our observant communities uh, certainly not opening up to uh, to women or to um, to non Jews, etc. And you have gone completely in the opposite direction. Uh, not only do you have, as you described it, you know, people of all backgrounds, uh, but you have women who are volunteers, you have non Jews who are volunteers, and nonetheless, it seems you still have the uh, praise of the uh, great rabbis of Israel. How did you work that out? Because, first of all, we, we really didn't compromise when it came to halacha. We, are, we invest a lot of our time and energy and finances towards halacha. We have a whole department of Rabbanim who actually really care about the halacha. Now, over the years, I tell it was only men and only Orthodox Jews, and it bothered me, because here in Israel, when, when we have a missile from, a, a, a grad missile coming in from Gaza, it doesn't really, it's not allocated only for men, it's allocated for anyone who's getting hurt. <laughs> and we had situations where we had to treat many, many people, we had only, we didn't have enough volunteers, and we had to train more volunteers. And we saw that women are more available in certain areas, and the second thing that we saw that we had to fix, it was a big problem, and it's a problem everywhere, but we had the guts to do it. And you have to read in the book how we did it and how that we got the Rabbanim to agree to it. We saw women who are suffering from terrible personal problems like miscarriage. It's a terrible trauma, emotional trauma and physical trauma, but they need help. And you can't do anything about it. A woman could treat that kind of situation much better. Also emotionally. And or delivering a baby. Why do we need 
four Hasidim delivering a baby while you have four midwives nearby. And this is something that I wanted to do, and I had to go to the Rabbanim and do it. And, and we got the approval. We did it according to Allah in a very modest way. And today we have over a 1,000 women volunteering in United Hatzalah. We are not the Hatzalah of New York or Hatzalah of Florida or any other place. We are separate organizations, so we have our own Rabbanim. We have tremendous respect for the organizations operating in other places. But we are, we use the same name, but we operate in Israel. We treat almost 800,000 people a year. And we, may, we, we have our own rules, and, and we realize that in our case, we need to have women responding to emergencies, and I think this is one of the greatest things we ever did. It's just interesting how different it is on this side of the world, but I can't argue with you. It's, uh, it's certainly an amazing accomplishment, at least it seems that way. In the 20 minutes that we've been speaking, how many calls do you think have come into the United Hatzalah headquarters? I didn't hear that, sorry. In the 20 minutes that we've been speaking, how many calls do you think have come into the United Hatzalah headquarters? Well, we average in this time, this is 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 2.20 in the afternoon, and we have around 7 calls a minute. This is very busy time, and uh, this is, we, ha- we can have, this is like the busiest time now, from, from 2 to 6. There's a lot of car accidents, we're treating a lot of people, and injuries, and, and, and a lot of emergencies. We treat almost 2,000 people a day. At nighttime, we can have two calls, a minute. Uh, you know, it goes down. Uh, sometimes we have, every few minutes, we have a call in the middle of the night. On Shabbos, we have a lot less calls. So we have, we have statistics around the clock to know when we need more, uh, where we need more people, what time of the day, and we change it all the time. We train our volunteers based on that. So if one does the math, I mean, there's some volunteers who must be very busy on a regular basis. Yeah, some volunteers just love doing it. I mean, you could see that in any Hatzalah, even in Hatzalah in New York, you have volunteers who go out to 100 calls a month, 200 calls a month. It's a lot of emergencies, but they love it, and they don't get paid. None of the volunteers, no matter if they're in New York or in Israel, they, they don't, not only they don't get paid, it's very special. The volunteers don't don't even get reimbursed on their expenses on the gasoline, but the ambicycles, the cars, they do it with shame to mind, and they love it. And the more emergency calls, the more the more they could do, they 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 feel accomplished. They want it. It's pretty remarkable. Ellie Beer is with us. The book is remarkable. It's called the uh, It's called Ninety Seconds: The Epic Story of Ellie Beer. And United Hatzalah, written by Nachman Seltzer, it's a uh, almost 500-page book and goes through the entire history and the entire uh, uh, accomplishment of getting United Hatzalah to where it is today. Um, I didn't realize that your uh, that the the struggle with COVID was as long as it was. I remember the video where you told the world that you were about to be. Um, uh, that you were about to be put into essentially what was a coma, I would assume, right? Sedated to the point that it, it would act like a coma, I would guess. And I didn't realize that lasted about four weeks. Am I right? About four weeks? Yeah, this was like, uh, this was the battle of my life. Um, I was put into, I was induced into coma. I was one of the first ones in Miami to be induced into coma. Uh, this, this was three years ago exactly today. I was in a coma. And um, it was right at the Purim, 
and uh, I had to say goodbye to my children. And the story is, is incredible because I didn't think I'll survive. The doctors, I was one doctor was very honest with me. He said, oh, you have a 5% chance of survival. And um, he was right. I had a 5% chance of survival. But the davening and Amisro, and I think everyone who's listening today was on your, on your show is davening for me. And it's incredible. Like, I fight for people's lives, and people are fighting for my life in the most difficult time of my life. What I find difficult to understand is if you had a 5% chance to survive, not being put into a coma was less of a chance to survive? Well, no one knew then. You know, this is a question. This was like the, the biggest question going on. Should we put people in a coma and put them on a ventilator or not? And I think the doctors today agree that if I wasn't put in a coma and they didn't put me on a ventilator, I wouldn't have survived. I couldn't breathe. I didn't have any oxygen in my lungs. My level was going down from minute to minute. And uh, they, they were, we had the best doctors in the world on the phone. I had Dr. Joel Sandberg who took responsibility on my life. He, he's an incredible human being. He took over my the responsibility for the decisions that were made on my behalf. And they had no choice but to put me, induce me into coma, put me on a ventilator. And some people were actually against it. I had, I had, um, I had some doctors in Israel who were totally against it, were, were fighting with the doctors in Miami and saying to them, I have one doctor, Dr. Avi Rifkin, who told the doctor in Miami, I'll, I will personally come to Miami and strangle you if you put him on a, on a, in a in an, induce him into coma. And, and the doctor said, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Your doctor Israel says, no. I say, yes. What do I do? I don't know what to do. I said, listen, let me ask a third doctor. And I called a doctor I just got to know, an incredible human being, Dr. Zevi Neuer. And I told him um, the situation. He knew already my situation. And he asked me, do they have ventil- ventilators available in this hospital? I said, yes. He said, grab one while you still have one. That was his answer, and I did. And uh, it was a big scare. I don't know if you remember, in New York, they didn't have ventilators. Yeah, of course. It was a frightening situation. I, I, I would imagine, I would imagine knowing the relationship that you have with members of our community around the world, more than once you were told, Ellie, we knew you'd make it through. <laughs> and, that, and that must be a great feeling, but also a frustrating feeling because some people just didn't realize just how dire a situation you were in. Did you hear from many people who said we knew you'd make it? Um, yeah, you know, after, after the case, everyone could say, you know, I knew, I knew that case. But I was really worried. I was. I said goodbye to my kids. I, I spoke to every child of mine, telling them how much I love them and how much they're important for me and how much I want them to be good Jews. I wanted all my kids to be good, good, good human beings. And I told them, like, I, I could hardly talk. I, I didn't have oxygen in my lungs, but I was talking to them. And I knew it's my last time I'm talking to them. And it was true. It was, it was the hardest thing in the world to say goodbye to your 12-year-old daughter. It was like, they gave me time. The doctor says, I give you a half hour to talk to your kid. And uh, I needed a half hour to every kid. And I thought, thinking about it, my wife, and I gave her, I said, listen, 
kids, you'll be okay. We have a life insurance. You'll you'll make some money, you know, whatever. And she was screaming at me and yelling at me. You're not. We're not using your life insurance. And I'm like, I'm. It's done. I'm. That's it. I am. I'm not going to survive this because, look, I was reading what was going on in 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 China, what was going on in in Italy and in, in Spain. It was a disaster, and and New York was just starting. I said, you know, this is a pandemic that you're talking about where millions of people die. I'm one of them. And I'm sure. And, and people just stopping for me. And, and by the way, the doctor put me into a coma. He was like, sure, I'm not going to, you're not going to, it was, he was hesitant, but he said, well, we'll do everything. I said, Dobbin for me, pray for me. He wasn't Jewish. He said, I'm not, I'm an atheist. When I woke up, he came over to me and he says, I started believing in God again. Wow. What was it like when you woke up and realized you were alive? Well, I had to pinch myself a couple of days. I didn't believe I was alive. And first of all, I was like, I thought I was kidnapped. I was like, I'm delusions for a few days. I was, my wife called me up. I said to her in Hebrew, call the FBI because I was kidnapped. They're going to kill me if they find out I'm Jewish. <laughs> so I was really in a, for a few days, I was in a depression. And, and you have to read the book because in the book, I actually open my heart and I tell everything. I don't hide anything. I wanted to resign from United Artillery after 30 years. I just wanted to resign. I didn't want to continue. And I and, and you have to read why I decided to stay. And and resign because enough was enough? Like it was just, it's too crazy a life? Or you, you gained an appreciation for other things while all this was going on? What would you say? First of all, I woke up in a really bad emotional distress. It was ICU deliriums. I was in, in a really bad personal situation. I was like depressed. I went, I went, I was Shaliyah Mitzvah. I went to, to raise money for United Hotel in Miami. I went to speak. I went to work. I went to APAC. I went for good things and all of a sudden I'm dying. Right. And then I wake up, like uh, I woke up 30, 40 pounds less than when I went to sleep with. And I couldn't get up. I couldn't, I couldn't use the toilet. I was, I was in a diaper. And uh, I was so depressed. I said, okay, enough is enough. I don't want to continue with the United Nations. And I was so depressed. And people tried calling me and convincing me, come back to Israel. I didn't want to come back. I had Miriam Adelson call me. Dr. Miriam Adelson called me. She said, every day I prayed for you. For the first time in my life, I said to Helen, because of you, I never said to Helen before. Sheldon Adelson's wife. And she said, I was praying for you. I was davening for you every day. You have to go back to Israel. And I didn't want to go back. You have to read about it. And uh, we know that on your way back from the hospital to the airport, there was quite a parade, quite a Sunday afternoon, if I recall correctly, of uh, people greeting you and hundreds of cars uh, being utilized as an escort for you to the plane. And then, of course, in Israel itself, my gosh, uh, in Israel itself, it's one of the most remarkable scenes as your colleagues and uh, your volunteers decided to uh, get together at the airport and treat you as a true VIP. Um, I think you'll understand how I'm asking this question. You, you, would, you preferred it that way, or you might have uh, been happier if you would have snuck into Israel as opposed to that celebration? You have to understand, I didn't know anything about the celebration. I wouldn't have, I don't like it. I don't like to be, it felt very weird. I was wearing pajamas, coming off a plane, could hardly walk. I was holding me, and all of a sudden I see a thousand people waiting for me. The airport was locked down. They didn't have any other flights coming into Israel. And 
the feeling was weird. I, I actually, in Miami, I had hundreds of people, you know, driving towards, you know, with their cars. They couldn't get out of their cars. Right. They were like escorting me. I actually thought it was my funeral. <laughs> and I said, wow, what a nice funeral. Like they made a nice funeral for me. And then I come to Israel, I see another funeral. I said, okay, they're going to bury me in Bichama somewhere. I don't know. Like, that's what I was thinking. And this is a few days after I woke up. And uh, then I realized what an incredible, you know, I love all these volunteers. I love them so much. I would do anything for them. And all of a sudden they, they show me love back and it was incredible. It, was, it gave me physics to continue for the next 30 years. You mentioned how you love the volunteers. There's nothing worse than losing one of them, right? Well, we lost, unfortunately, since the book was written, another volunteer in a terrible accident on an ambicycle. You can read the story about Effie Gadassi, incredible story. Uh, he was the first volunteer who was killed on a mission next to the Waldorf Hotel near Jalim on the ambicycle. And um, how that really shook in the whole organization. We almost decided to shut down the ambicycle unit. Just a month ago, we lost another volunteer, and it's very, very hard. Every single time, Yoel Suisa, he's an incredible father of four kids. He's, he went to the nuclear facility in Israel, in Imona. He lives in Imona, and he, um, and he, he was a tzaddik. He went at the 60 emergency every month. He was killed by a terrible accident. And... Um, I, I go through this and I take it personal, like my own family. I spend days with them and I was in the morgue with his son. And I, and it is like my own child, every single volunteer, no matter if the volunteer is a firm volunteer or a secular or an Arab, I look at them as people who gave their lives to others. They deserve the, the best respect. Yeah. Pretty amazing. I have to ask you about a couple of situations. I mean, look, the United Hatzal has been involved in God knows how many thousands of situations, but there are a couple that are high profile, and I need your perspective on them. Tell me about the United Hatzal volunteers' role in Mayrone. In Mayrone, two thousand uh, two years ago. Yeah. I mean, three years ago. Yeah. Uh, this was one of the darkest nights of our lives. Um, every year we knew that a tragedy is going to happen every single year. We would say we will probably have one or two people die from, you know, the pushing and everything. And we used to bring a bottle of whiskey and every single year we had hundreds of volunteers come to help as volunteers. We didn't charge. We would just be there helping people who were injured. Sometimes we had over a thousand people that are in a few days that we treated there. You know, heart attacks, we had we had a woman deliver a baby, we had people pushed, we had injuries, but we, we always was worried about someone dying. And every year we would make a l'chaim, thank God we had a miracle this year. And three years ago, unfortunately, we didn't have a l'chaim. We, we did CPR on, on, on 45 people who died, we tried saving. And a few people we did save. We had a few miracles that we saved people, but being there and the volunteers seeing, you know, we had my daughter, my, my daughter, Vigal, uh, she was, she was there doing CPR to seven different people, including, um, Morris, the kid, uh, from New Jersey, Morris, um, Danny Morris, right. 
who, who died and she, she did CPR trying to save him. And she, my daughter was traumatized for, for months and had needed treatment like every other volunteer because this was so dramatic all like this was a personal tragedy. And we never expected 45 people to die and 300 people to be injured. And as much as conditions have been improved, even last year was a challenge, right? Even last year was uh, where, you, where you really need the cooperation of the people in order to make sure things are safe, and it, and it becomes a challenge. It totally becomes a challenge, and everyone wants their you know, power, and people had so much power, and no one was really looking at the big picture. And no one, everyone had their own little shtetl there, their own little shul, their own little minion, their own little fire, and everyone was like, no one was really coordinating this whole effort. And uh, even now, I don't, I, I hope this, last, yesterday we were in the Knesset talking to the Knesset members who are in charge and, and talking about things that we, we see. That I'd rather not talk about it in public, but it's terrible, terrible. And it should be fixed immediately for the coming year. Wow. Uh, tell me about Ukraine. Why did you feel the need to uh, extend United Hatzalah's role outside of Israel and to help those who were in dire situations in Ukraine? Well, listen, my father grew up in New York, Lower East Side. I think that's where you grew up, right? I didn't grow up here, but uh, that's where our, our main headquarters is, yeah. So Lower East Side, my father grew up there, and my father was a young boy. He was only um, 10 years old when the Holocaust started. And my father, 10 years old, and he went to raise money to save Jews from the Holocaust. And my father was raising a penny and, and, and a quarter and whatever it was to raise, to raise money to save more Jews running away from Europe. And when I got a phone call from a woman in Israel telling me that we need to save her a little baby, a little baby girl who was stuck in Ukraine in a hospital, she said, if, I don't, if we don't save that little baby, the baby will be di- die or kidnapped, or I don't know what's going to be. The baby was in a hospital in Bucha, which is destroyed by the Russians. And, my do- and this woman said, please save my, my daughter. I remembered my father's stories about the Holocaust. And I remembered what he did to save Jews in the Holocaust. And I said, I have to do everything possible to save this little girl. And really, this is while I was in Florida by Rabbi Goldberg's shul, Bokhartan Synagogue, my teens were already there in Ukraine, and I sent them out to save this little girl. It took three days to get her out of there, and we got her back to Israel. <laughs> and this is, this is what I was taught by my father. And I, and I said, you know, we have a responsibility. You know, it wasn't our duty. This is the UN's duty. This is the Red Cross duty. But this is our responsibility as Jews. And when we went there, people were saying to me, Ellie, why are you going there? You know, how do you know they're Jewish? So I said, we're not helping anyone because they're Jewish. We're helping them because we are Jewish. Pretty amazing, frankly. All of this is only possible because of the friendships that you've made around the world. People from uh, Israel, the United States, and many other countries who are supporters of United Hatzalah and understand the value of unity, united, and understand the value of life of uh, being able in 90 seconds to get to somebody whose life is in danger. 
Uh, how about a word about those who have been so supportive and who've really given you what's necessary in order to make this dream a reality? Well, it's just really this book is so incredible because it talks about all aspects, about the miracles, about stories, but also talks about the people behind the organization who don't get credit, the people who support incredible life-saving missions like in Ukraine or in Israel. Um, and I talk about people, some people, I talk about their names and who they are and, and how hard it was and, how, and, and inc- incredible stories about people and challenging not so easy to raise money. It's a very hard mission to raise money. And I, I could say over the years, I learned to love the people who support. And I look at volunteers in Israel who are giving their life. I look at them as the biggest donors. So I'm asking them to go out to another emergency, to go out to another emergency. So it's easy for me to ask someone to give another motorcycle or an ambulance because I'm asking the volunteers the same. And the stories about them is in, are incredible. It's really interesting. You'll meet some people. You'll 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 actually know their name. You'll you heard of them before, but uh, someone you never heard of before. Pretty amazing international effort to support the great work of United Hatzalah. And finally, what did you think of Rabbi Seltzer's uh, final product? What do you think of the the book after he had completed it? I think Rabbi Seltzer is brilliant. I didn't really know him so well. I knew him a little from his music, but I think he's brilliant. The guy is a genius. He comes with this tiny little recorder, like 1970. He doesn't have a cell phone. <laughs> from Radio Shack? I'm not kidding. Yeah, from Radio Shack. I bought the same, my walkie-talkies from the same place that I bought it the same year he bought it. And he has he has a phone that was, built in 1991, the same phone, Nokia, the first Nokia ever, and that's how he's walking around. I can't reach him by, by WhatsApp. I don't have any communications by internet with him, only emails. And he wrote an incredible book. That's, I don't know how he did it. Like He, he wrote it. Like I was, He was interviewing me. I, I thought I'm talking to a psychologist. <laughs> he went into the kishkis. I tell him a story. He says, I was in a restaurant with this and this. What, what did you eat? I said I had a sandwich. What kind of sandwich? What what was in the sandwich? I have to tell him I had salad and I had uh, I had I had a, a salmon and I had lox. I, whatever he wants to know, what kind of lox was it? <laughs> Every detail, unbelievable human being. I love I love Rabbi Seltzer. I never knew him before, but he's a genius and a brilliant guy. And he wrote fifty books, almost fifty books, which is incredible. Yeah, pretty remarkable. And this audience certainly knows just how. Amazing he is. The book is called 90 Seconds, The Epic Story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah. Rabbi Nachman Seltzer is the author. Go to artsgirl.com. Make sure to use promo code radio for your discount and free shipping. Again, it's called 90 Seconds, The Epic Story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah. Check it out today at artsgirl.com. Are you, are you, would you say you're 100% healthy now? How would you describe your situation now that uh, we're past COVID? At least we think we're past COVID at this point. Well, in my, I think we passed COVID. Now we have other troubles. We have Iran. We have terrorists. We have other problems we have to deal with. And we have Israeli politics, which is not pleasant. We have to keep this organization above politics. And I think we're doing a good job. We have achdus that we have to keep in there to throw and saving lives. And COVID was a very hard time for me, but I think this time is hard. 
it's hard. What's going on in Israel now? Stay fixed. But if you read the book and see about 90 seconds, you'll see how we were able to unite people who otherwise would be demonstrating one against each other and fighting and screaming and throwing things at each other. And in one organization. And I think that's, that's a uniqueness of United Hatzalah. No question about it. It's something unique and something that we don't see very often. Uh, the incredible unity and the incredible organization. Uh, it's called 90 Seconds, the epic story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah, written by Nachman Seltzer. Ellie, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Mazal tov on the book. And uh, continued success. You're doing incredible work, and uh, it's just an absolute pleasure to see how the organization continues to grow and to flourish. Thank you very much. And I want to thank Dalia uh, Zlatowicz and his whole team, Aaron, and everyone there. They're incredible. They believe in the mission, and they really worked hard to make sure this book comes out perfect. And you can also buy it on Amazon, by the way. It's not a conflict. And Amazon, just look up 90 seconds. If people, it's easier for them to go to an Amazon. Or just go into, go into your bookstore. Go into one of the bookstores, Eichler's or whatever store you have, and get it. It's in the stores, and I hope you get inspired. Oh, I'm sure any reader will be, as I was. Thank you, Ellie, and take care. Thank you so much, Nachum. Great to be by you all the time. Appreciate that very much. And Mazal Tov again on your most recent addition to the family. 90 Seconds, the epic story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah, written by Nachman Seltzer. Go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code radio. More coming up. You're listening to JM in the AM. Mm-hmm.